0: And now out of reverence for the word of the Lord, its inspiration and authority, if you're physically able, would you stand for the reading? Luke 23, verses 44 to 49, Luke writes, it was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn into. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord today for you, his church, and may it pierce us yet again by the cries of our Savior from the cross, his commitment to the will of the Father, and the call of Christ for us to yield our will to his as well. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So whenever you think about um, world politics, nations, you know, stirred up together, conflicts, economies, all the things that are going on in the world, there's one nation that has always seemed to stay above that fray. In fact, starting in the 13th century, it was their formal policy to remain neutral in international affairs. At the Treaty of Paris in 1815, all the European national leaders signed an agreement guaranteeing the formal neutrality of this country. And then in 1845, it seems like they waited a long time to do this. In 1845, this nation voted to make neutrality a part of their constitution. And so I think we all know this nation is Switzerland. Very good. You passed your test. So that's why it was really interesting and kind of shocking almost 20 years ago when Switzerland reversed course and they voted as a country, 55 percent to 45 percent to join the United Nations and give up their policy of international neutrality. Jack Straw, a British diplomat, said this historic decision puts you one of Europe's oldest democracies where she belongs at the heart of global decision-making. So this diplomat, Jack Straw, he said, Switzerland's back where she belongs. She's in the game. She's off the bench. She's taking part. She's giving counsel. She's engaged, right? But not everybody was so happy. There was a, a Swiss, a billionaire, a man named Christopher Blocker. And he was quoted as saying he deeply regretted this decision, and said it will lead to the weakening of Switzerland. Freedom will be limited and neutrality will at the very least be deeply damaged. And I thought about that and I thought, how do, you, how do you damage neutrality, which by definition doesn't take a side? Like you can damage a cause, but how do you damage a non-cause? But as I continue to wrestle with the whole concept of neutrality, there is something kind of beautiful about it. I mean, it, it is appealing in the sense that you can be friends with everybody. You avoid conflict. Nobody's mad at you. You get to avoid all the drama and the hard conversations. And, and it, you, you remain kind of above the fray and at peace with everyone. So there is something kind of delightful about that. But there's also something that's really challenging about it. And it's highlighted by a United Methodist pastor named Leighton Farrell who wrote this, the peril of neutrality lies just here in its emptiness. It is neither for or against. It is bland. It has no vitality and therefore is always surrounded by dangers. What an interesting line because neutrality is supposed to protect peace right? I'm just not going to get involved in the conflict. So I'm going to be protected from anything that might result. And yet Leighton Farrell is saying that neutrality can be this dangerous thing. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that while being neutral may afford certain opportunities or blessings, being neutral is dangerous because it robs us of all the things that make life worth living it robs us of what it means to be committed to a cause that is larger than our just our little lives it robs us of, of being part of something with other people and forging relationships as we work together to achieve that end it robs us of things like joy and love and common purpose and human dignity to commit ourselves to neutrality is essentially to commit ourselves to one purpose only and that is self-preservation I think Teddy Roosevelt, at the risk of being redundant, said it well. You've heard these words before. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, but because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, who knows the great devotion, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the high achievement of triumph and who at worst if he fails while daring greatly knows his place shall never be with these timid and cold souls who know neither victory nor defeat. I think he paints such a wonderful picture of the gray murky middle of that place that the the timid and the cold souls know where they're just neutral. They're not committed to anything. I think he paints the picture well. So the question then becomes for us this morning, what is it beyond the obvious things like family? Is there anything in your life that means so much to you that you would draw a line in the sand and say, here I stand. I am committed to this thing. I'm gonna invest my life in this thing because how you answer that question is going to determine so much about your actions, your behaviors, your thoughts, your investments, all those things. Is there anything in your life right now that is going to move you off the fence of neutrality and actually into the game? And that's what brings us in this ongoing series, the seven last words or phrases of the life of Christ. This is what brings us yet again to the cry of Jesus from the cross, where we've already heard several of these things, but he's already endured the forsakenness of the father. He's already recognized the father has turned his back on him when he becomes the embodiment of sin, which is why I find it miraculous. Amazing that in verse 46, he still says, having been forsaken, father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, father, I'm yours. I'm yielding myself to you. And friends, right there is where we find the rub that has has been with human history ever since that moment for 2000 years. It's why the cross of Jesus separates all of human recorded time from before what happened, uh, from before the life of Jesus to after he died. It's the fact that the cross doesn't allow neutrality. When you come to the cross, it's the fork in the road of human history. You look at the life of a dying man, And it's not debated by historical scholars or academicians. There was a real Jesus. He was crucified by the Roman government and he suffered and he died. What do we do with that death? What do we make of it? We can't just walk away and do nothing because doing nothing is actually a choice. You can't be Switzerland here. Is there anything about the cross of Christ and the words of Jesus that you hear that would demand your commitment? That would cause you to draw a line in the sand and say, here I stand, I will move no further. Jesus himself even said this, Matthew twelve thirty. If you're not for me, you're against me. In other words, there's no such thing as being neutral here. Either you're for me or you're not neutral, you're against me. If you're not for me, you're actually working at cross purposes to my kingdom agenda. It was written in a letter to the Christians at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, when God says, I wish... I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're neither, I'm gonna spit you, literally vomit you out of my mouth. God says to the church of Laodicea, I wish that you were anything but the gray murky middle, but because you're not, I wanna spiritually vomit. It's a graphic word. God in our relationship with him is not interested in our neutrality. And yet still somehow you and I try to pull it off. We try to walk in the murky gray middle and say, well, I want to follow Jesus, but not too close. I want to see what he has to say, but I don't want to be all in. I just want to see how it goes. And that's why I read to you verse 49, because there's a whole group of people that at the cross, they're following Jesus. And after he dies, it says, where were they? They were way back there. It says they followed Jesus, but they followed at a distance. They didn't wanna to be too close. They didn't wanna be identified with him. They didn't want anybody to know that they were actually following him. What if somebody asked me a question? Well, I don't, I don't wanna do that. And so we tend to do the same thing. We'll talk about Jesus with others in our community. Oh, he was a wonderful teacher. There's a lot of wisdom there, but we're kind of trying to be neutral because we don't wanna offend anybody. But friends, in that moment, you can't look away from the real Jesus, who was a real human being, who died a real human death, and on the cross says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, I commit myself to you. I yield myself to your will. And it demands that we ask ourselves, what do we do with that statement? If the son is yielding to the will of the father in order to accomplish the plan of salvation, then what does that mean for us? What is our... Commitment, And I think it's so important for us today to consider this question because COVID has unraveled so many of our commitments because of time, because of restrictions, because of new habits that we've developed on Sundays. But so many people are saying, we don't even know who the church is anymore because we don't know who's committed. And we've developed all these new things. It's important for us to consider today. As all of our commitments have gotten fuzzy, what is our commitment in light of the fact that Jesus says from the cross, Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. I'm committed to you and your will. How do we respond to that? There are important things, three things we need to look at in this. And the first is that any commitment that we make to the Lord, any commitment that we engage is always our choice. It is up to us, Jesus clearly says, into thy hands I commit. Right, I love what Anne Graham Lotz used to say years ago, she would say, God is a gentleman. He's not gonna force you or coerce you, it's it's your decision. And I understand the sovereignty of God, God is sovereign in all things. Our reformed theology tells us he's sovereign, even in salvation, but that doesn't eliminate free will. We still choose and we know that's true because if we were robots, if we were being controlled by God, he would not hold us responsible for our decisions. But he does, which tells us we are free choosing agents. We choose. And it's so interesting in Luke chapter 15, there are three parables that Luke puts together. One is about a woman who loses a coin. The second is about a shepherd who loses a sheep. And the third is about a father who loses a boy or he loses a son. But it's interesting. The woman goes to find the coin and brings it back and puts it where it belongs. The shepherd goes to find the sheep and brings the sheep back and puts it in the fold. But the father does not go looking for the son. And you think to yourself, well, is he some cold, heartless dad that doesn't love his son? No. Leighton Farrell says it was because forced commitment is no commitment at all, but control. See, the power of the prodigal son is in Luke 15, 18, when the prodigal son says, I will arise and go to my father. If the father had gone to the son and found him and said, oh, come on home and grabbed him by the ear and said, now I'm gonna keep a closer eye on you so you don't do that again, that wouldn't have meant anything to the father. What means something to father is when we choose to submit ourselves to him, when we choose to respond to the love that he's given to us in Christ. It's why this morning... I baptized an eight-year-old boy, Abel Sims at the 845 service. And he stood up here before the whole congregation with such courage and declared that Christ was his Lord. He said, today, I'm gonna arise and go to the Father. I wanna be a covenant partner. Joshua said, today, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. Well, how would you, especially in a post-COVID world, how do you finish that sentence? As for me, what? As for me, what is my commitment? What is the commitment that I'm making in light of the commitment of the son to the father on the cross? And then that gets us to the second thing because we have to realize, we can stand back and say, well, gosh, that's easy. All I have to do is choose. Okay, I choose Jesus. I'm committing myself to the father. But that is to make it, to assume that it's that easy is to make the choice cheap. It was costly. It cost the father, his son, and it will cost you your life as well. Because what happens to Jesus? We learn it in Gethsemane, do we not? When he's wrestling with the nature of the cross and yet he says to the Father, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. That's when the Father submitted to the eternal will of the Son and accomplished the purpose for which Christ came is the redemption of our lives, yours and mine, and the ultimate salvation of the world when one day the new heaven and the new earth come together and God will come down and dwell with us and we with him in the perfection of all things. But see, that's the problem for us, isn't it? It's that whole concept that you heard sung about, the idea of surrender. Because our culture's not big on surrender, is it? we're taught the exact opposite. I don't want anybody in control of my life. I'm the authority over me. I know what's true. I don't have to be obedient to anybody. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. So when God calls us to follow after him and commit our lives in the way that the son committed to the eternal will of the father, that's a a completely different thing than what you're getting in culture. But whether or not you'll commit to that Whether or not you can begin to say, Lord, I don't want what I want anymore. It's not about me. It's not about what I want, my desires, my dreams, my hopes for the future, all of it. I'm gonna yield my will to yours. Whether or not we're willing to say that all depends on how we understand the nature of that word commit. In Greek, the word literally means to entrust, to give something over to another for safekeeping. And there's the rub, isn't it? Who do you think is gonna do a better job managing your life, you or God? And a lot of you right now are going, well, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. I don't think I wanna give up the driver's seat. But boy, I don't know, in my life, when I'm trying to dictate things and run things, I, I make a mess of it. But as you're considering... Do I really entrust my life? Can I trust God to be the safe keeper of my life? Then we start playing in our minds, well you know he didn't he didn't really show up in that situation. This was really hard. I had a lot of pain here. And then we stand back and we go and what about that whole thing that I know a lot of good people who don't know Jesus and does that mean they don't go to heaven? And what about the Muslims and the Buddhists and where where are they gonna wind up? And what about the people who've never had a chance? And what about all the weird things and the mean things God did in the Old Testament? We start arguing all those peripheral things, which is exactly what the enemy wants us to do instead of looking at the core where we are on Palm Sunday as we move into Holy Week. St. John of the Cross in the 16th century was in prison and he is the one who coined the phrase for the first time, the dark night of the soul. You've all heard that phrase, those moments where it's dark and you cannot feel the presence of God and you doubt if it's even true and you're calling out and you hear nothing. It's the dark night of the soul. And he wrote of that experience and he said this. He said, do I still want God? If that comes without any additional blessing, what if it's just God and nothing else? Not marriage, not health, not prosperity, no other granting of petitions. Would I still love God? Would I still be committed to the father? And ultimately his answer was yes, that in the dark night of the soul, a God who is dying to love us is enough. In the dark night of your life, when even Jesus hung in the forsaken nature of the father, a God who is dying to love you is enough. It's enough to make the commitment such that you entrust your life to the will of the Father, whatever comes. See, that's the second half of last week. Last week, I asked you, do you wanna take the deal? You wanna take what God offers and experience salvation? Man, that's awesome. This is the second part. All right, now I've taken the deal. Now am I willing to take the next step and say, not only do I take the deal, am I pleased about salvation, but am I willing to now yield what I want to what God wants to do in and through me. And that's the third thing, friends. That's where life gets really hard and really joyous all at the same time because you're no longer neutral. You've gotten off the fence of neutrality and you said, okay, I'm in. And guess what? When you commit your life to a purpose larger than yourself, that's when you experience such exhilaration and joy to be a part of what God is doing in the world. That's why if you were here last Sunday, it was such an exciting moment. We had 26 kids down here profess faith in Jesus Christ. We had someone in our online audience send me a text and say, hey, I took the deal. We were celebrating. We had a staff phone call Tuesday morning so that everybody on the team, whether it was the person who counts pennies, the people who run sound, the people who get the rooms ready, so everybody knew, because all those people are involved in this common commitment that we share in together that we are committed to the cause of building the kingdom of God. That's what happens when you take the deal, when you commit yourself, you become a part of this larger thing, the bride of Christ, the church. That's God's plan. It's what he's given to the world to accomplish the building of his kingdom. It's not an institution. It's the divinely created bride through whom he's revealing himself to the world and you by virtue of your profession of faith are automatically grafted into it and now become part of this larger thing so that even on last Tuesday, we're sharing the joyous moment because we were all part of it. And then four hours later, it's absolute shocking pain and grief as Trish Wilson is hit by a car And two days later, she dies. And we grieve because we were bound up with her for 44 years. We were all part of the same purpose. Think about everything that Trish saw in her 44 years at this church. I mean, she saw the ups and the downs and the good and the bad and the ugly and everything in between. And yet here she was. Because friends, that's what the church is. It's never all joy. It's never all sorrow. It's all rolled together into one as we pursue this greater end. And all those things are apart because you and I are sinful broken people because the church is a hospital for sin sick souls. It's been very famously said the church would be awesome if it wasn't for all the people. Right? If you find a perfect church by all means stay away from it. You'll ruin it. And so we're committed together for this larger purpose because we're not neutral, because we actually believe that Jesus Christ is the singular hope of the world. And so you go, are are you in? Are you committed? And we go, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. Well, let me remind you about this wonderful Latin saying that theologians used to use years and years ago. Finitum capax infinitum which means that the finite is capable of holding the infinite. Yes, you're finite and you're broken and you're sinful, but you hold the infinite, which means that God at work in you can accomplish the impossible for his purposes and for his glory. And that's what makes the pain and the hard times and the frustrations worth all the struggle is to see the kingdom come. So yes, in Acts chapter seven, as Stephen was being stoned to death, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Archbishop Thomas Beckett in 1170, as he's serving communion, is murdered. And as he's on the ground, he gets to his knees and says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. John Huss for his unwillingness to stop proclaiming the gospel in 1470 burned at the stake and as he dies he says father into thy hands i commit my spirit friends can we utter those same words we can when we realize that the finite holds the infinite and god by his power and his presence enables you to do exactly what he's called you to do because you're in you're not neutral you're committed to this thing larger than you are and that's what makes your life so different and so meaningful and satisfying is when you take part in the kingdom work of God through his church. So my prayer for us today is that we, like Trish Wilson, would say, I'm in. Father, into your hands, I I yield my will to what you want to accomplish. And I entrust my life to you, I challenge you today to think about your commitments and what God calls us to be about as we hear those words from Jesus on his cross. Let us pray. Lord God, we love you and we thank you today for what is the the hope and the promise of your cross, that while you suffer that what we see is the model for our obedience. That in the same way that you were submissive to the will of the father in order to accomplish the plan for the redemption of the world, so we too become submissive to your will for our lives so that you can accomplish through us your will for our lives and that they would be too for the building of your kingdom. Lord, for your purposes on earth. Lord, I pray that in the midst of all the messiness and the murkiness that sometimes the church can be, that you would allow us to reclaim that picture of her as your bride, as that divinely created body that we are together with and for this greater and your kingdom. Bind us together, I pray, that we might commit our lives to you this morning for your sake and for your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.